This program is brought to you by PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. To learn more about this podcast, visit pli.edu slash pro bono podcast. From our perspective, it was so lovely to be able to do something so proactive. So many times in pro bono work, we're reactive and in an emergency situation. And being able to do something proactive was was really wonderful. And it just made a ton of sense as all this new investment is flowing into the neighborhood and as property values are rising, it's, it was just the exact moment to make sure that everyone is going to have full agency over those those assets and do with them what they wish and hopefully maintain that generational wealth. Philadelphia is an important American city with a rich history. But Philadelphia also has plenty of modern-day struggles. Home ownership sits just above 50%, which is higher than other East Coast cities, but its poverty rate is higher than those cities, too. In fact, Philadelphia is the poorest big city in the U.S., with a poverty rate just above 20%. And because Philadelphia is an old city, at least by American standards, the housing stock is old, too. Much of it is contiguous row houses that are, on average, 93 years old. To sum up the challenge in Philadelphia, there are a lot of old homes, which cost money for upkeep, half of which are owner-occupied, but too many of those owners are struggling to meet basic needs because their incomes are too low. Now, in many cities, these are the conditions where the old residents get swept out, and new, higher-income residents move in to gentrify the neighborhood. Some people might assume that's okay because property values rise and the old residents can get a good price when they sell a place they can't afford to maintain. But there's a problem with that theory. What if the old residents can't get the benefit of the rising property values? What if they get pushed out when they'd rather stay in an area where they have strong ties? What if they don't have the legal papers in order to protect their ownership rights? What if they bear all the downsides and reap none of the upsides of gentrification? Welcome to Pursuing Justice, the Pro Bono Files, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. We are here to tell pro bono stories, stories that we hope inspire you to take your own pro bono legal work to the next level. I'm your host, Alicia Aiken. I've worked in civil rights, criminal defense, and civil legal aid, but now I'm a principal at the Danu Center for Strategic Advocacy and a faculty fellow at PLI. And I love getting to talk with volunteer lawyers and nonprofit legal projects around the country about the pro bono work that matters to them. I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I do. Habitat for Humanity Philadelphia could see that this wasn't a fair or just outcome. So they began partnering with longtime residents in the rapidly redeveloping Sharswood neighborhood in North Philadelphia. And pretty soon, 
they realized that they needed lawyers to help address the problems of existing homeowners. This is a story of how Habitat for Humanity Philadelphia leveraged their relationships with Sharswood homeowners and with the pro bono legal network Philly VIP to repair title problems, to foster estate planning, and to preserve people's agency over the wealth in their houses. We were especially lucky in this conversation because we got to talk with the Habitat strategist, the pro bono leader from Philly VIP, two homeowners who got help, and the pro bono lawyer who helped them. And I promise you'll get to meet all of them in this conversation. But we are going to start with Carrie Rathman, Director of Strategic Partnerships at Habitat for Humanity, Philadelphia. My work focuses on deepening impact and expanding resources for the organization. We had been working long-term in what we call neighborhood revitalization work in the Sharswood neighborhood. And part of that work, besides building and repairing homes, we were also supporting residents in their vision of the neighborhood and doing anti-displacement work. Carrie, I think Habitat for Humanity is one of those organizations that everyone has heard of, but I am not sure if listeners actually understand how Habitat for Humanity works. So can you give us a brief primer on how Habitat for Humanity works? So I think most people know us for our home ownership work, and I'm only speaking about Philadelphia because mm-hmm. every affiliate is different, but we create new homeownership opportunities by either building new homes or renovating, and then we sell them. But folks are promised an affordable mortgage so that they'll never pay more than 30% of their um, household income on that. Historically in Philadelphia, that has been a zero interest mortgage that Habitat holds. So we are also the bank. So we ensure that that whole environment is creating homeownership for lower income households that might otherwise and have traditionally been blocked out from homeownership. But we also repair existing homes of low-income homeowners, which in Philadelphia, we have many and thousands, and many of them own their homes outright. Or we also know that that work can't be done in a vacuum. And if we want to make sure that your home keeps you safe and healthy, that we also needed to think a little bit about the neighborhoods and how can we support an existing neighborhood is also a neighborhood of opportunity and where people can thrive. And that's how we started sort of working in in a target neighborhood, doing more, more public space, more convening of people to build power. So part of that and our mission is to keep people in the homes that they own and to create new homeownership opportunities. And a big part of that is um, towards the wealth building and also making sure that folks have that incredible asset and that they have full agency over it when they get to transferring it. It's an asset that builds generational wealth. And it's our hope to make sure that those families both live in a safe and healthy and decent home while they're while they're alive and wanting to be in it. And then they have full agency to pass it on to whomever they want. We also know that there's more to a neighborhood than just the physical structures. None of it is sustainable if the people aren't sustained. And we believe that if in order for all our homeownership work to be sustainable, folks need to feel a sense of community, social connection, social cohesion, and to be able to act collectively. I didn't let on to Carrie at the time, but I'm one of those people who definitely did not understand the breadth and depth of Habitat's vision for their work. They are sustaining and enriching entire communities by meeting the needs of individual families in homes. 
So once I finally understood their work, I wanted Carrie to tell me more about the specific North Philadelphia community that is the focus of this episode, and that is Sharswood, a neighborhood that boomed during the Great Migration and was a jazz club destination in the early 20th century and was predictably redlined and undermined in the second half of that century. So Sharswood is a neighborhood that had seen a lot of disinvestment after the 60s. It had been had been sort of the mecca, it was like the Harlem of Philadelphia, a sure. cultural hotspot, but then, you know, disinvestment and racist policies and and flight, black middle class flight happened when um, through both there had been some uprisings over desegregating an important landmark school in the neighborhood. And then also, also the housing authority had like sort of broken up the neighborhood with that 70s model, late 60s model of the super block. And then just also disinvestment of cities. And Sharswood was somewhere that had all of those things happening at once. This is a good time to meet the homeowners in our conversation. Longtime Sharswood residents, Miss Esther Davis and her adult daughter, Leslie Davis. I'm Esther Davis. I like to be called Miss Esther. I've been involved with Habitat several years ago where they came out and helped me make my house safe, warm, and dry. Hi, I'm Leslie Davis, just Leslie. I'm a homeowner now. I have a house with my name on the deed now, all because of this program. And I know it sounds real corny because I'm almost 60 years old, but so what? It happened. I got it done. I'm safe in in my neighborhood where I didn't want to leave. Can I ask a question, Leslie and Miss Esther? Are you in the same house or you're in different houses? Different, different houses. houses. Different houses. Same neighborhood. Tell us about your neighborhood. Our neighborhood is cool. Yeah. It's, it was it was nice before um all of this work has been done and all our new neighbors. We have neighbors from everywhere now, New York, Delaware, Maryland. I could go from one block to the next block and I know everybody. They call me a mayor on my block. And it's all families. Somehow, some homes, some some of the blocks are are generations of families, you know, and and, and it's just sweet. It's just nice. It was a little decline, I'm going to say, in the 80s. It got a little rough, but people left and it got even worse. It started looking bad and the crime got bad, but then people got tired of it, pulled together. It was cute before. Like, it it used to look like. I don't know how old you guys are, but we used to look like Mr. Rogers' neighborhood or Sesame Street, that type, when you think of a neighborhood. But now it's like metropolitan. It's beautiful. Yeah, we've been there. Our family's been here for years. That particular block where Leslie is right now is where I was raised. I actually grew up there. And then after I was married, I bought the house across the street. So she became the baby of the area. And she grew up. Well, most of your life right there. You can hear it in their voices. Miss Esther and Leslie, they are deeply committed to their neighborhood. They wrote it out when things got rough, and they are enjoying the influx of new people and investment happening now. And what Leslie and Esther are describing is the exact reason that we want to make sure that as the value of the neighborhood is appreciating, that the folks that have been there still get to get all that value again out of their house and pass it down 
and that it isn't lost and that they can live safe and healthily while they're there and access everything that a clear title allows them to do. So they're illustrating exactly why this work felt really important to do, especially at this time in that neighborhood. So what specifically is the important work that Carrie is referring to? Well, neither Miss Esther nor Leslie had an estate plan in place to ensure that their homes got legally transferred to their chosen heirs after their death. And Leslie's title had some serious complications because her grandmother hadn't had an estate plan either. They both needed legal help to address the issue. But finding an estate lawyer that you can trust and afford? That is just a huge barrier for low-income homeowners. So there, there's the pro bono part. Habitat for Humanity realized that too many Sharswood homeowners either did not have a clear title to their homes or did not have an estate plan to pass on clear title after they died, and that this was causing major problems. Let's meet Lindsay Schoonmaker at the pro bono law project known as Philly VIP. And then we'll get everyone in the discussion so far to help us understand how they work together to make things happen for homeowners like Miss Esther and Leslie. My name is Lindsay Schoonmaker. I am a supervising attorney at Philadelphia VIP. We work with clients on things that are civil litigation for low-income, civil work for low-income Philadelphians where they couldn't get free legal services elsewhere. Sometimes we joke we do A to Z, adoption to zoning and everything in between. And Mm -hmm. am I right that everybody on your staff is geared towards facilitating volunteers? That is correct. We have caseloads in that we are getting cases packaged and ready for volunteer attorneys. And then we pass the case along to volunteer attorneys to do the legal work of accomplishing the whatever the goal of the case is. And then the work that we're focusing on here today is a huge part of the work we do. We work with homeowners both to get title to the home that they are living in, either because a family member has passed away and they need to probate an estate or they're living in a home that requires litigation to get title into their name. So lots of reasons to help people who are living in a home with a legal interest, but don't have record title. And then once someone has that asset in their name, we want to do the flip side and work proactively with people to be able to preserve that asset, be able to transfer generational wealth to their families and loved ones. That is the key here, because if Philadelphia communities don't get proactive about clearing and legally transferring titles, there are some looming serious consequences. The Pew Charitable Trust had done research not long ago, and they estimated that over $1 billion in generational wealth could be lost in Philadelphia, especially in Black and brown neighborhoods and from Black and brown homeowners, from transfers of homes that don't have clear title. This phrase, tangled title, can you explain what that means? Sure. A tangled title is when someone is living in a home, is not a renter, but is is not legally the owner by title. So the deed is in someone else's name, but our client who has a tangled title is living in the home that 
they don't have record title of. And I, it can happen for a variety of reasons, but the Pew Charitable Trust study that Carrie mentioned earlier also came out with the statistic that over 10,000 homes in Philadelphia are owned by dead people. And so one of the biggest issues is that in order to get title from a family member who's passed away, you have to probate their estate. And there are fees associated with that as well as legal issues around it. So to open an estate, you have to go to the Register of Wills, petition to open the estate. There's a filing fee for that. Then you need to transfer the deed and get all of the heirs on board to decide what is going to happen with the property. You have to file an inheritance tax return and pay inheritance tax. Depending on how you're related to the person who died, there might be transfer tax when you record the deed. And so there's all of these issues that on their own aren't super complicated, but added up, it's a, it's a long process. And so Philly VIP often helps people to untangle title and get that probate done complete and get the title into their name. The city of Philadelphia has put a lot of resources into the tangled title issue and has created something we call the tangled title fund. So when I was talking earlier about the fees that are associated Mm -hmm. with untangling title, the tangled title fund administers this money that is from the city of Philadelphia that helps cover fees for people who qualify for the grant, the probate filing fee, the inheritance taxes, Mm -hmm. transfer tax if it's required. And at VIP, we have an uh, agreement with the Department of Records and they'll record our deeds waiving the fee. And and I assume that's because the city of Philadelphia recognizes that it's better for the whole city to have this worked out and to not have... Exactly. But you reasonably may be asking, how does this happen? How do we end up with 10,000 homes being technically owned by dead people? Lindsay's description above of the fees and arcane forms is definitely part of the barrier to clearing titles. But Leslie also helped us understand how real families approach the rights and responsibilities over a deceased relative's home. I can say why it happened in our family. Like, yeah. is, 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 is grandmom and grandpop's home, so when they die... Any family member, family member that wants to live in it, go ahead and live in it. Right. Like, and then I stay, or my auntie will live here for a while, and then she don't want to, she gets married, moves off. So, and who wants to live here next? It's like not even a give or a thought. Put your name and want to do it the right, the do the paperwork. Mm-hmm. Just yeah. go ahead and live in it. It's paid for. It's go ahead, take care of it. And as soon as you start tearing it up, we're gonna put you out and put another family member in. You know what I'm saying? And Mm -hmm. I know that's how my cousins are, and that's how some of my friends are. Well, if you think about it, and I mean, Lindsay, you definitely got expertise, but for me, it's it's ironic because the reason that it happens is because you all are treating it like a family home. Like everyone's treating it well. You're paying the taxes. You're taking care of it. If there's a mortgage, you're paying it. So everybody is doing what they're supposed to do, and so it's not a problem. Right. And so paperwork doesn't get done because the paperwork is it's expensive to hire a lawyer to do the paperwork. It's annoying to do it. It can be expensive. It's confusing. You you have to talk to the legal world, which going to law school breaks your brain and you forget what words are real words and what words are lawyer words. Right. So 
I totally understand that it is this weird problem where families that are doing right by the family home can get caught in a tangled title situation because there wasn't ever a problem that caused the government to come. That's my guess. Lindsay, you know things. And it's not a problem until it becomes a problem. And where it becomes a problem is where the family starts to disagree or the family needs something from a city program, from repairs, from Habitat, something that requires someone who is alive to have record ownership and to be the one who qualifies for that program. So often we get people coming to us, not because they wake up one day and say, hey, I need to have the deed in my name. It's because there's some other driving factor that not having the deed has become a problem. Carrie, what were you and Habitat for Humanity seeing in the Sharswood neighborhood that led you to reach out to Philly VIP for help? I mean, we had been working there for many years. We had created 25 new homeownership units. We had repaired at that time probably about 50 or 60 homes. But then we were working with hundreds of residents convening, many of whom were homeowners, many who were describing anxieties over gentrification and change in the Mm. neighborhood. Now, Carrie knew about Philly VIP's work on title issues, and she approached Lindsay about creating an estate planning clinic in Sharswood. And what I like about this next part of the story is the way they listened to each other and created a version of a clinic that would actually solve real problems for the homeowners in Sharswood. Lindsay tells us what happened when Carrie approached them with the clinic idea. We are a little hesitant about the clinic model in that we really like clients to be able to, particularly for estate planning, to be able to think about what they want after they've had initial counseling with a volunteer. So Carrie and Habitat were really um, patient with us and creative with us. And we came up with a model that worked for everybody where we went out to Sharswood and met the Habitat clients in their neighborhood and a facility that was familiar to them. We did a training for volunteers and then had the volunteers sit down and do introductory conversations with their clients about what their estate planning might look like, what would happen if you did not do estate planning. So if Miss Esther didn't do estate planning, exactly what would happen to her property if she died without a will. And then thinking about what, how she would want to change that, how she would want to create a will that actually solved the issues that she was facing. And then we scheduled another time a month later back out at the same facility for document execution day. And um, that allowed volunteers the time to draft the documents, get drafts to their client to review, to answer questions, and then also allowed our clients to be able to talk with their family members and the person who they wanted to appoint as the executor. Are you sure you want to do this? Figure out, you know, have family meetings and talk it over and think it over. And then everybody came back together and executed the documents so that they were final. From our perspective, it was so lovely to be able to do something so proactive. So many times in pro bono work, we're reactive and in an emergency situation. And being able to do something proactive was, was really wonderful. We were a trusted voice to bring in VIP 
to do the outreach, to do that high touch sort of management to make sure people come out and stick through the process. And it just made a ton of sense as all this new investment is flowing into the neighborhood and as property values are rising, it was just the exact moment to make sure that everyone is going to have full agency over those those assets and do with them what they wish and hopefully maintain that generational wealth. And because and here at Habitat, we talk a lot also about maintaining and creating Black homeownership and also as a means for narrowing the generational wealth gap. So it, it just made a ton of sense. And but it, it took, we actually had three clinics set up so that there was sort of this mix and match um, time one and time two for folks so that there was, we wanted to try and get the most optimal way that we could make sure people could see the process all the way through. And then it took a lot of, you know, people are uncomfortable talking about death and assets. And Mm -hmm. so it probably took like, we did general outreach to a couple hundred people and then it took follow-up calls. And then there was about 50 folks who were interested and there, there's some melt each step of the way. And it took about five, four to six actual calls and outreach and reminders to folks to make sure, to feel confident that people were going to get all the way through the process. But it worked out really wonderfully. And it feels like so, it feels like a really needed, it helps ease my anxiety. They're just less vulnerable in general to scams and they can leverage that asset as they want to. And for VIP, there was a huge benefit in working with Habitat in, for the most part, when we get cases, we are getting cases referred from another legal aid agency as overflow that they they can't handle. Estate planning is one of the few areas where we do direct intake, but having a clinic setting in most clinics, tons of clients express interest and then fall off with the relationship that Habitat had built with their clients and with the people that they were bringing to the clinic. We had a really high level of people who showed up at the clinic and went all the way through and completed with their documents. We didn't have 100% get a document at the end, but everybody at least got some counsel and advice and maybe they needed more time to think. But the fact that so many people showed up is just a testament to how carefully carry, reminded everybody, contacted everybody, explained what the process really was in advance and the relationship that Habitat has with its homeowners. I really enjoy hearing the two of you talk about this because you're so thoughtful about designing this in a way that works for the folks in the neighborhood who it is for. The last thing we want to do is invite people into the clinic to discuss what do you want to do with your property when you die and then not have a plan for helping them get the documents mm. in place. Yeah. And that's going to take time. They're going to need a month, maybe two, to figure it out. But if we wait too long, then it might never happen, right? So that's- I'm just hearing a lot of thoughtfulness about what do we need to do to meet the neighborhood of Sharswood where they're at so that people can get what they need. And uh, Leslie and Esther, I don't know if you have any thoughts on what it felt like trying to access this clinic. To get to the clinic, was it a pain? The walking distance was right around the corner. corner. Yes. At the school, it was real convenient. It was crowded that day, too. A lot of people came out. 
And I was shocked at that because, all right, don't take offense, okay? Mm-hmm. But a lot of times when people come into our neighborhood and say they're going to help us or they go, we're not always so trusting mm-hmm. because what you get out of helping me? And it's free? That's too, that sounds too good to be true. You're going to try to take my property or you're going to try to steal my social security number. It just seems... You know, we been through some things being black and brown. So you don't always want to trust everybody. But you got to trust somebody sometimes when you need the help. And then it's also a little intimidating because I was like, this, are they going to send me down with a lawyer? And then this man is going to sit down. He's going to say all this terminology. I'm going to have to Google every other word he say to figure out what he's talking about. And I'm not going to understand. Yeah, I'm not going to understand. He's going, no, I don't understand. And he's going to take my property. Or or he's going to say, I can't work with this lady because she's special needs. She don't understand nothing I'm saying. But it wasn't It was. It was, it was like that. It wasn't right. like that at all. And I felt so bad admitting that that's not how I was thinking at first. And I wasn't the only neighbor that felt like that at first. But when we met him, when we met everybody, as soon as you come in, they was like, we had refreshments and food. They had a whole dinner. And and you can, I'm going to pair you with an attorney. I want you to hear these people that's in the program. It was bankers and attorneys. It was all kind of people. And black and brown and white. It was, it was, so it wasn't all white attorneys. It was just mad cool, which made other people, I don't care what color you are. I just want you to hold me. And then it's free, and I don't want you to only help me half the way. You're, you're giving the most beautiful description of what folks need to do if if they say they're going to help you got to keep your word right you got to be really clear you know you are reasonable it is wise to be suspicious because i also used to do consumer fraud right so i would i would have all these clients come in say well somebody came to my door and they said they were going to help and they made it really easy and so i signed the forms and now somehow i don't own my house right so you were wise to be skeptical I actually started feeling bad for thinking in a negative way before because it was way easier than what I thought. And everybody that came on that very first meeting kept their word. They were actually there to help. They Mm -hmm. wasn't trying to swindle anybody. They kept, everybody kept referring the same little mantra like, we want you to stay in your home. We want you to stay in your neighborhood. Everybody kept saying it. Not just VIP, not just just Habitat. And we, I never worked with Habitat, but my mom and my auntie worked with Habitat. And my aunt kept saying, you're going to love Habitat. You're a fool if you don't take advantage of this. That goodwill that Leslie's aunt expressed for Habitat, that was earned. Carrie talked about all the ways that Habitat thought about the details of the clinic and how to make the whole experience as useful and accessible as possible for clients. Because it's a really private with each attorney meeting with the folks that they're talking with, you have other people sort of sitting, killing time for lack of a better word. We had a a pastor who also works for Chase Manhattan. We're sitting, waiting their turn to meet with an attorney. She did all kinds of fraud protection and identifying Mm -hmm. scams. And they went along with a theme of protecting your assets. And then we also did have a table from the Register of Wills office with information about other related pieces of it. So we tried to make sort of as much of a closed, trusting, comfortable ecosystem um, as we could. Of course, Carrie and Habitat had built the deep community relationships that they could leverage to get people to the clinic 
And Lindsay and Philly VIP had a great understanding of what you need to do to make an estate planning clinic work. But there is one more key element that had to be in place, a great pro bono lawyer to meet with Leslie and Miss Esther at that clinic. So let me introduce you to Steve Hyman. I'm Steve Hyman. I am a retired corporate attorney. I spent the last 25 years of my uh, active career uh, doing corporate transactions for what started out as Bell Atlantic and became Verizon. So I did mergers and acquisitions, partnership deals, securities work, and so on. After retiring 10 years ago, started doing what I had neglected doing for the 30 years before that, which was doing pro bono work. I got together with the Philadelphia VIP and started volunteering my services there. I've done about four or five cases every year, doing everything from some tax representation to mortgage conciliations, landlord-tenant work, and most recently for the last few years, tangled title and uh, estate planning work, which is how I got paired up with Leslie and Esther. What do you like about the pro bono work that you've gotten to do with Philly VIP? Oh, it's just such a different experience than the corporate work I did for 35 years or so. I mean, you're actually doing something that has an immediate impact on individuals' lives rather than helping a corporation do admittedly good things. I never felt bad about the work I was doing. It's just uh, it was for a pretty diffuse goal, whereas here I'm actually helping people with immediate problems that they have in their real lives. It just is so gratifying to first meet the people like Leslie and Esther, who are always interesting and usually easy to work with and frequently very entertaining, sometimes <laughs> challenging, but it's so far been a good experience in like 98% of the cases that I've worked on. So, it, and obviously the idea of finally I'm giving back a little bit to the system that, that was so useful to me for many years. And so Leslie talked pretty honestly about her nervousness about coming to the clinic and first meeting with you. What were you thinking when you went to the clinic? What were you worried about? Let me make an observation here, which just occurred to me when we were having this meeting. I hadn't realized the difference in approach and possibly perspective of the clients in a clinic situation as opposed to what I've done most of the time, which is get a direct referral from VIP. I hadn't recognized that there might be more trepidation, more concern about, are these people really here to help me or to, are they, is this a big scam that's here to rip me off? I guess it is really a tribute to the, the organization and thought behind the Habitat VIP clinic that I participated in that didn't even strike me then that there was potential trepidation on the parts of clients because it was so well organized. And uh, yeah, there was dinner and there was information available. Mm -hmm. And I think people, I had the sense that Leslie and Esther were quite comfortable sitting out and talking with me. There was, of course, a potential conflict of interest here since I was representing both of them. We did take mm -hmm. care of that, well. get a conflicts waiver signed by both of them. So anyway, we got paired up there and we just started talking. We had a, the initial discussion about what is it that you're trying to achieve? 
we're here to do an estate plan. Do you know what an estate plan means? Do you know what all of these components are? All of that needs to be laid out and discussed. And is this really what you want to do? Do you know, have you thought about what, where you want your assets to go? Leslie and Esther had given that a lot of thought beforehand, I think, and really had a good sense of what they wanted to do. Yes, we discovered there were a few complications to just, it wasn't as simple as just doing a, an estate plan. We had to worry about getting the assets in the right place, in the right name to begin with. But uh, we were able to work through that quite easily over the, what was it, about an hour, I think, that we sat together. Uh, and again, VIP and Habitat had prepared uh, checklists and, and agendas for us to work through. So it was quite easy just to take down the information and where the information wasn't available, gave them both homework to take back with them and get back to me over the coming weeks. Yeah, as that additional information came in, new questions arose. And as I think Leslie and Carrie said, the plan was to get everything accomplished within a month. In our case, it took more like a year to, to get to the finish line. When Leslie and her mom, Miss Esther, came in, they both wanted the same thing, an estate plan for their homes. And while Miss Esther's situation was relatively straightforward, they quickly discovered that Leslie had a tangled title. Leslie had taken care of her grandmother, and when her grandmother passed, Leslie stayed on in the family home. But the deed record, it still showed the property belonging to her deceased grandparents. So they were going to have to do a lot more work to get Leslie clear title before they could do the estate planning for her. There were a whole variety of complications that we had to work through. We found that uh, Leslie's grandmother's estate actually had been opened and probated 20 years earlier, but unfortunately the house had not been included in that probate. So although the estate was all done, we had to go back and reopen it. I learned a lot doing this case. It was a distinct pleasure for me, and I think we established a really good relationship, and we were all really happy when we got back to VIP a year later. He kept working with us. He's so patient. He kept working. And a lot of the homework, he gave, he gave us homework. A lot of the homework we actually had um, to gather our materials and our information. I had a lot of stuff. My grandmother kept perfect organizational stuff. So... But then he started using terminology, and I was like, oh, my goodness. And I said, listen, I don't know. What's, what's probate? And what's, what's, it was a bunch of other stuff. And he said, oh, all you had to do was tell me there, this means this, and this means that. <laughs> I don't know. I knew what that was. Oh, yeah, I did that. Oh, is this it? And I was sending him a picture of it through the email, and he was like, exactly. But listen, you need two more of those. Leslie, do you remember that moment when he had to say to you, we have a problem here? It's going to take longer. Yep, I remember. I thought it was my fault. But yeah, I remember he tried his best. To, well, he explained it like an attorney at first. And I was like, what? Well, what, what you want me to do? And he said, wait a minute, let me explain it again. A, we're going to do this. B, I need you to do this. C, and then I'm going to do this. I was like, all right, that's not a problem, Mr. Steve. He's not like, oh, it's just a hiccup. Don't you worry about it. Don't worry about it. It's a little thing. 
thought I was like, oh my God, I'm not going to be able to own a house. I was a little worried, but he was like, it's a hiccup. That's his word. He's like, it's a hiccup. Don't worry about it. We're going to take care of it. You do what I ask you and turn it in when I ask you. It's going to be fine. So I was scared at first, but he put you right at ease and we got it. He got, he got it done. Alicia, I loved your your characterization of what happens to us in law school, that it breaks our brains. I, we, we forget sometimes how we do have to try to speak English occasionally. From the clinic organization perspective, yeah. we had a list from Habitat of who was going to be coming to the clinic. And so we yeah. did pull deeds in advance to make sure that the volunteers were going to know when they sat down oh. how people held title to their home. So we did handpick Steve for this case because, you know, to sit down and talk with Miss Esther and Leslie because we knew that he would not be as shocked as some other people. So from a organizational perspective of planning a clinic, we do try to keep things within the scope of what a volunteer is going to really? expect or, you know, be prepared to handle. And it was never expected that Steve went all the way to the end with this. We were just hoping he would give some advice. But the gem that he is, he agreed to do the whole case. He said he's a good person. He really is. He's passionate about what he's doing. He really wanted us to stay in the neighborhood. What you see with him is what you get. Carrie, what are your thoughts as you're listening to this conversation? It might be a little bit rare to get to hear this kind of reflection on the outcome of Habitat's vision. Well, it's wonderful to hear sort of the impact that it had on the Davis family. Um, it's fascinating also just to listen to how much goes into it and making sure uh, that each of the each of the lawyers is ready to handle the complexities. It's kind of it's a gift actually. It's a gift to understand how the sausage is made and then also understand the impact that it has. And it really is just like a perfect complement to the work that we're doing at, at all three levels at the creating homeownership, maintaining homeownership, and then the neighborhood level of anti-displacement. And then, uh, well, the fourth also of ensuring generational wealth. So it just feels like a really um, solid, good sense partnership for us to continue to do. One of my problems with doing this podcast is every time we do a new area of law, I start to think, ooh, I should be doing that. And 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 again, I I never thought that I would say, ooh, I should be doing estate planning. And I'm like, yeah, I really want to do Aww. help someone do their will. So it's it's eye-opening for me because I often think that a lot of pro bono is for litigation attorneys and that the challenge is to get transactional attorneys to feel welcome and invited into the pro bono space. But what I'm realizing is that litigation attorneys should start thinking about are there transactional things that you could be doing that you could be taught to do and supported to do. And that is, as one of you said earlier, proactive instead of reactive. Because now that I have the, the, the deed with my name on it, I could join programs. I could get things done to my house. Now I own it. Let's own it. it. Yeah, yeah. You own it. I know I say it a lot, but I like it. Miss <laughs> Esther, can I ask you, what is it? meant for you, you were able to work with Steve to get your will and your estate planning documents done, right? Right. And so what has all of that meant to you? How do you feel about it? It's lifted a really burdensome weight because I didn't know, well, I've experienced the death of my parents and what 
my sister and I had to go through because of that. It was just a large, a big confusion. And I'm, I'm, now that I've been through the estate planning process, it would have been so much easier if they had had a will. And then the, uh, things, the thing she learned from Steve, we had a family meeting back at this past summer, and she sat everybody down, and she said, listen, I'm going to keep everything in this file cabinet right here, so that's locked cabinet. But if I get sick in the hospital and I can't speak for myself, it's already planned out what's going to happen next. This person's in charge of that. This person's in charge of that. And I was like, my brother was like, I don't want to talk about that right now. Is that thing like, no, you're going to hear. You want to talk. Just listen. And because Steve told her to do that. Yeah. So not to speak for you, but I think we learned something there too as a family that you have to have these conversations and it should be planned out and it should be documented the right way. Do you, Leslie, Miss Esther, do you think that if you need to work with a lawyer or get legal help in the future, do you think it'll be easier now because of the experience you had with Steve and Philly VIP? I think now I'll have a better understanding. I'll be like, wait a minute, hold up. No. Could you explain this easier? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I got my phone. I'm going to Google this while you're talking. That's the only thing that I don't feel is intimidated now because of my experience with Steve and, and, and VIP. Mm-hmm. And... I'm going to be upset at the end because I got to pay. Yeah, I won't be as intimidated. And you know if you ever need to change your estate planning documents, you'll come back to VIP and let us know. Steve, you look like you were maybe having a thought when uh, Leslie was talking about how she won't be intimidated or as intimidated if she were to meet with a different lawyer. Oh, my thought was just I need to keep learning the lesson that even though I try not to be, it probably is just intimidating to meet with a lawyer or any kind of professional that you're not used to dealing with and first step is to just be a mensch rather than be a lawyer uh, in in the first um, which I think all of us need to learn better every time or or relearn each time we do something. My only other thought is uh, I really do want to encourage people to who are active lawyers and who are retired lawyers to get out there and make use of the license that they have to to help people because it's such an easy thing to do and it is so gratifying. And it's great to have organizations like Philly VIP that, that make it easy. There's the pitch. Make use of your license. Get out there and do something proactive in your area. Reach out to the pro bono networks in your own community to see how you can help folks protect their homes and their families' long-term well-being. Thanks for listening to Pursuing Justice, The Pro Bono Files, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. This production is dedicated to the pro bono and public interest lawyers working to improve access to justice. A special thanks goes to our producer, Daniel Pinitz, as well as our host, Alicia Aiken. Please note that the views and opinions expressed during this podcast represent those of the individuals being interviewed and not necessarily those of PLI. PLI is a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys and other professionals at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. For more information about PLI's wide-ranging curriculum of pro bono programs, visit pli.edu slash pro bono.